Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Skiff Meetings Podcast, the podcast for curious event professionals embracing the future of business events. My name is Andrea Doyle, and I am the executive editor of Skiff Meetings. In this episode titled Navigating the Legal Middle Ground, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jill Jerling Blood, the lead legal counsel for Marit's Global Events, where she also serves as the Privacy and Compliance Officer. We discuss topics including how she helps clients overcome hurdles by finding the middle ground, how it's important to expect the unexpected. We talk about a new law passed in the state of Washington called My Health, My Data that meeting professionals should have on their radars. We talk about the importance of well-written contracts. And finally, what planners need to know about AI and intellectual property. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation, and I invite you to check out other episodes of the Skiff Meetings podcast with tips and insights from today's most influential event professionals. You can find all the episodes on our website or by subscribing through your favorite podcast service. for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. I'm Jill Blood. I'm Deputy General Counsel for Merits. Um, so I'm the lawyer that handles all of our meeting and events business for our company. I started my career, um, well, I went to University of Virginia for undergrad, where I majored in English literature and religious studies. And I remember at graduation, my dad looking at me and saying, well, now you have to go to law school. You're not necessarily employable with either of these degrees. So came back home to St. Louis and went to law school. And then out of law school, worked at a major firm doing mergers and acquisitions work for about seven years. And it was a great firm. It was unbelievable training. But I think what I realized about myself is that I wanted to be embedded with a company to help them grow and meet their strategic vision. When you do merger work, you often sort of get through the big deal. And then you don't necessarily see what happens after that. How you, was it the best thing that happened? Was it the worst what happens after that? I wanted to be the person who came in after the deal closed and sort of helped the company grow and meet its strategic vision. So left the firm and came in-house and made one stop before Merits, but found my way to Merits in the hospitality industry and never looked back. It's such a great company and such a great industry that it's kind of a dream job for an in-house lawyer. Oh, that's great. Were you familiar with Merits before you interviewed with them for the position? You know, I was because they're they're kind of a force in the St. Louis area. They they have a big campus and do a lot of sort of good work in the community. So I had seen the name. I knew vaguely what they did. It wasn't really on my radar, but I was looking to make a move and they had a job posting and came and remember calling my mom as I left the interview being like, this is the job. This would be uh, 
the dream job that I didn't know was my dream job until I met with them and felt extremely grateful that they felt the same way after that interview. So was thrilled to be here and really have never regretted that decision for a day. That's great. And since you started working for Maritz, do you look at events and conferences differently? Oh, absolutely. I I think great events are one of those things that if it's done so well, you almost don't notice it's happening. It's like a duck sort of with its feet under the water moving really fast. So I think now I see those feet under the water. I see all of the work and all of the effort that goes into making something that seems sort of easy and natural and great work so well that that's not just sort of happenstance. Um, And I also think legal industry conferences tend to be, for the most part, really focused on content and a little bit less focused on kind of guest experience. So I've been to some amazing sort of content focused conferences and meetings. But then I think when I got to this industry, really saw kind of the potential of what bringing people together in sort of a design forward, thoughtful way can be. And now whenever I go to legal conferences, I find myself sort of noticing like, oh, the flow on this uh, lunch line could be a lot better. The agenda could be clearer. They've made me a meeting snob for sure. (laughs) Um, What does a typical day look like for you? I feel like that's probably a hard question for everyone. But the thing I love most about my job is there's truly not a typical day. There's days where I'm spending a lot of my time working on sort of client contracts, on sort of our contracts. I handle our data privacy work and also our employment law. So there's days that are taken up with that. And then there's days where it's really taken up with the meeting side of things. How do we negotiate contracts with our vendors, with our suppliers? I spend a lot of time thinking about sort of trends in the industry what that looks like, sort of trying to skate to where the puck is and thinking about where contracts going, how do we have hotel and supplier agreements that are forward looking. We book meetings so far in advance that we spend a lot of time thinking, well, when this meeting operates, what will we want this agreement to say, as opposed to what lesson did we learn yesterday? So we spend a lot of time sort of thinking about that, but really no one day, just kind of whatever comes through. And how has your position evolved over the last few years? I think it's evolved a lot. When I came in, I had no experience with the hospitality industry at all. So I knew the law. I don't think I understood the industry. I didn't understand events. I didn't really just understand hospitality. And I think, you know, the folks at Merits were nice enough to sort of give me a crash course and be patient. But I think understanding the industry and what makes it tick has made my job more engaging, but also really helped me on the other side. But also the pandemic just changed everything. You know, I had been at Merits for about three years when the pandemic hit and was just feeling like, I think I got it. I think I sort of understand what's happening. I understand the industry. I understand our relationships within the industry. And then the world changed overnight. And for two years, almost all of my day was thinking about force majeure provisions and cancellations and health and safety requirements and how do we get people to meet and get people to meet safely and how do we move these meetings? And then I think the last few years have been rebuilding years. I'm also thinking about what do meetings mean post-pandemic? What does the future look like? How do we sort of be thoughtful about the lessons that we learned from the pandemic while still looking forward and not letting it sort of paralyze us? 
So it seems like, you know, there hasn't been a quote unquote normal year in the seven years I've been at Merits, but it does feel like the pandemic really changed anything. There was a a time where I think I would have said, oh, I wish our people were more risk aware and more risk adverse. And now if anything, we're doing the opposite of saying, if you want to have a great meeting, there's some risk involved in that. And people are so nervous still that, you know, they're aware, they're nervous, and we're trying to sort of make those thoughtful risk choices as opposed to, well, everything goes right most of the time. We don't need to worry about it at all. It's a shift in thinking, I think. And did the pandemic change your contracts greatly? It did. We were lucky enough that we had pretty strong language in our contracts to start with. Most of our hotel and supplier agreements, um, you know, I think force majeure is something that prior to coming to merits, I would have said, oh, those provisions never really come into play. And then, you know, they definitely do now. So our contacts were pretty strong. We've definitely updated them to be even clearer, even more precise about where the force majeure happens, the impact it needs to have. I think the pandemic was unusual because when people think of force majeure, they think of a hurricane hitting. That's sort of a finite day. The hurricane was not there and then it was there. A thing that we've changed in ours is sort of saying, you might not know on day one of a force majeure that it's going to impact your meeting. COVID hit in January, we were canceling meetings two years later. That group wouldn't have known in January of 2020 that it was gonna impact their meeting. We all thought it'd be two weeks. So we've revised them a little bit to say, you know, not when the force majeure event first happens, but when you first become aware of the impact it will have. We've done things like try and pin down geography. So where the force majeure happens, the event that it has, things like that. And then health and safety and emergency preparedness we see show up in our contracts more than ever. It was there. It's there in a ramped up way now that sort of you will work with us to make sure that this event can be safe and can be healthy in whatever form that looks like. There was a time in early pandemic days where it was, you will wipe down the surface with Clorox every 15 minutes. We moved away from that and towards sort of more general, we will sort of comply with health and safety regulations. And in contracts and out of it, we see a focus on emergency preparedness. What are we gonna do if a hurricane hits? What are we gonna do if something goes wrong? I think that's healthy, but it's hard because you're not gonna be able to think of every eventuality and a lot of meeting planners are sort of type A, they want every sort of gray area nailed down. And I think it's hard to say, we won't know what that emergency is, but let's develop a plan that we could activate sort of no matter what happens. So those are the main changes we've seen, but also contracts are just harder than ever to get across right now, it seems. We've been covering boycotts a whole lot. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like, um, laws in place that can be polarizing. Is that something you include in contracts? That if a law is put into a place that might not go along with a company's viewpoints that there's some sort of loophole? So it's a conversation we're having a lot with clients. We have clients who want to move a meeting or want to think about moving or canceling a meeting because of that. And we have clients who are thinking about it at sort of the RFP stage. What we've heard from most of our suppliers is that they don't like and won't allow sort of a broad clause that says if a law that's passed 
that I don't like or that doesn't align with our corporations, our group's values, we can cancel. What we hear from those suppliers is we don't have control over those laws. We are also sort of subject to the whims of legislatures and that sometimes moving, canceling, or not planning a meeting can harm the very people that you're trying to protect. They're impacted classes in those destinations who work at those hotels, who work for those DMCs. So we've seen clients propose language. We've tried versions of language. Not a lot of it has gotten through to the final agreements. I would say where that's not true is where a meeting has a really specific purpose. So we've seen variations of frustration of purpose language make it through. That's something that's more typically used for if I was hosting an event aligned with the Olympics and then the Olympics got canceled, my event doesn't make any sense. We've had folks, sort of organizations who are tied to specific causes, use it successfully to say, if we are doctors who perform abortions and we have a meeting and then a state passes a strict abortion ban, maybe that state isn't where we can have our meeting, but it's really narrow. What we've been advising clients is have those conversations early and often, call the hotel, call the destination. A lot of our DMO partners have developed really robust toolkits are being really thoughtful about, here's how you can come and have your meeting in a way that feels true to your values and makes your participants feel good. It's things like group conference calls with concerned attendees to put sort of their voices, make sure that they're being heard, making sure that there are protections to people who maybe don't feel safe being someplace. In some cases, testimonials from people who live in those destinations saying, this is what it's really like to be here. Or things like social offset, which I know has been getting some buzz lately that sort of functions like a carbon offset, but for social causes. So helping people through creative planning and sort of thoughtful RFPs develop meetings that make sense for their values and are aligned with sort of who they are, even if that's in a destination where laws may or may not be passed. And the reality is sort of anywhere can be polarizing. You're going to have an attendee who takes sort of umbrage with something in whatever destination. So we've been trying to avoid sort of outright boycotts. It is an issue though that I suspect we're what, 360 days away from the next election. And I suspect we're going to see more of this before we see less of it, because I think it's going to be a polarizing election. And, you know, there'll be laws passed. And I, I think being really thoughtful, we're also sort of advising our team to just be really thoughtful about what they're saying on site with other people. You don't know other people's political views. Things are more polarizing than ever. We had somebody on our team tell a story about ordering a Bud Light in an event and somebody went, oh, a Bud Light. And they're like, I promise you, I'm not making a political statement. This is just the first beer that popped into my brain. But I think in this climate, just being really thoughtful about not knowing where somebody else is coming from, not knowing what their views are, and just being really thoughtful about sort of what you're saying in a professional setting. But I think it's going to get harder in the next year before it gets easier for sure. Right. I agree. Yeah. Have you had any unusual requests because of this current climate? I don't know if specifically around the current climate. I mean, the requests that cross my desk on an even week always just sort of make me chuckle, you know, to plan engaging and interesting events. <laughs> you end up with somebody picking up the phone and saying, we want to rent a blimp. Do we have a template agreement for blimp rentals? And I'm like, I will check. We can figure one out. This is not something they taught me in law school or 
my favorite was somebody who called and said, how many shark bites is too many shark bites for us to disqualify a supplier? And I was like, it's one, it's gotta be one. Like, this is, I How, how many shark question. bites are too many? <laughs> yeah, like, is three shark bites too many for us to go shark diving with a vendor? And I was like, I don't know if this is a legal opinion, but yes, three is too many. <laughs> oh my gosh, so, that's so funny. The number of questions I get on any given day just sort of crack me up and are pretty random, but not a lot around politics or sort of the current climate specifically. I suspect we'll get some, but for the right. most part, I think our clients sort of, they know who they are. They know their members, they know their attendees, and they're pretty good about anticipating sort of how people feel and what that'll mean for their events. So would the shark bite and the blimp, those are your most unusual requests recently? Probably. Somebody suggested to me a couple of years ago that I should keep a folder of just the things that cross my desk. So I'll occasionally be talking to other sort of lawyer friends who work not in the hospitality industry and are doing, you know, tax law. And I'll be like, oh, it was just a stressful day. I had to figure out, you know, how we could bring a helicopter to an event to take people from one place to another. And they'll be like, what is your job? <laughs> I don't you spent all day talking about blimps. And I was like, I, I was surprised too, but now I know a lot of things about blimps. I did a deep dive and now we do have a blimp template if anybody needs it. Oh, really? We have sort of a general risky activities list that we treat. So we have risky activities and then extremely risky activities. And I like to joke that our sales team is constantly trying to trick me by trying to get something that I've never heard of that we didn't think of putting on the list. So they'll call and say, we want to do jetpacks. Is that where on the list does that fall? And I'll think, I didn't even know that that was a thing that you could actually do. And I'll have to Google it and we'll have to talk to our insurance agent. So that list is sort of a constant source of entertainment because we have creative, great meeting planners who are always finding the latest and greatest cool thing that you've never heard of. And then you're sitting in your office like, is it riskier to use a jetpack or to go bungee jumping? The search history on my office computer must make it look like I just spend all day dreaming up ways to sort of get injured. Oh, that's great. It's funny. It's never boring. <laughs> so we had the pleasure of meeting a person at IMAX and um, we chatted about My Health, My Data, which is a game-changing new consumer privacy law focused on health data that will impact meeting professionals. I was hoping you could explain the law a bit and um, explain why you feel it should be on the radar of meeting and event professionals. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, we are lucky enough to have a really strong sort of outside privacy law council. Their name's KO, they're based out of Denver. Um, that brought this to our attention a couple of months ago and sort of said, we think this might impact your industry. It should be on your radar. So we're thankful to sort of get a jump start, but Washington passed a law that's really designed to protect healthcare data. So your, your health information. And the idea is that you should have knowledge about when that information is collected and shared and control over how it's collected and shared. And I think most people would agree with that at a 10,000 foot view level. And every time I mention this law, I see somebody's face be like, why are you talking about health records? We're meeting and events professionals. 
And the challenge with this law is that health data is defined so broadly that it includes things that I think as meeting planners, we don't really think of as health data. So if you have a shellfish allergy, if you have a gluten allergy, things like that, also things like ADA accommodations. So if you have to disclose a medical condition such that you can get care on site, that can be considered health data under the law. Also things like measurements. So when we have folks go on a helicopter, we have to collect things like height and weight. That can be considered health data under this new law. That's information, at least at Merits, for our clients, we collect and share pretty regularly. So I think that's going to change how the industry sort of thinks about that data. What the law would require is consent to collect that data, consent to share it, and then sort of security requirements, but also transparency into who the data was shared with and how, if the person asked. So I think it's just more thoughtfulness around how that data is collected, how it's shared. And Merits, I think what we're looking at is sort of when you ask, do you have any allergies, a button would pop up that sort of explains how it's shared, how it's used, and ask for your consent. I think that transparency can be good, but I think we also just need to educate attendees about what it means and then be thoughtful about sort of the downstream sharing of that information. The law doesn't go into effect until late March of 24 at the earliest for some, there's some sort of extensions in there. Um, another thing about the law to keep in mind is that it has a private right of action, which means you don't need to wait for a government regulator to come and enforce the law, which I think, you know, government regulators aren't necessarily always looking at a three-day meeting, but in this case, an individual who registers and says, this doesn't look compliant to me, could bring a suit and sort of get, get a payment from the company for that. For ADA requirements, especially online, there have been some activists who have gone out and sort of found those suits with the intent of just testing it. I think it's possible that that happens here too. The other thing to keep in mind is that um, Nevada and Connecticut have also passed similar laws. They don't have the private right of action, but they do have a lot of the same sort of consent and sharing breakdowns. So for us, we're looking at sort of applying these same protections to all attendees as our default standard, because it starts to get confusing if you're going state by state. It's people located in those states registering, and it's events that happen in those states. Once you bring Vegas into the mix, you have such a percentage of especially big shows that I think it probably tips the scale in favor of just sort of offering the same level of consent to everyone. But I think it's going to change how we think about certain data, at least for us. You know, sometimes you're at an event and you have a place card that has sort of a shellfish little sign on it. I think being more thoughtful about how how those medical conditions are disclosed and being a little bit more, more protective of that data going forward. And then eventually this will probably go to other states as well. It always seems like it. These things have a tendency to spread. I personally think that's, you know, they're individuals like it. As a privacy lawyer for a large company, this is really hard to comply with. I think what's tough for the events industry is these laws aren't intended for a three-day sales incentive meeting. They're intended for much broader companies sort of doing nefarious stuff, not I'm going to a convention and I want the banquet to not poison these people. So I think it's, 
I think it's not really designed for us, but I think they are popular laws. When you when I think about this law as it relates to sort of healthcare records, it makes a lot of sense. I want to know if my doctor is sharing my health records with somebody else. So I think they're popular. They're consumer facing and popular. So I think I think more will get passed. I think they'll look slightly different. I think one of the challenges in the U.S. right now is we have this patchwork of privacy and compliance laws. There hasn't been a lot of traction on getting federal laws similar to what Europe has managed to do. And that gets hard. If you have something like a data breach, you need to look state by state. The current privacy laws are state by state. So it's different in California than it is in Missouri, than it is in New York. I think this will be similar. And that makes compliance really hard, especially for groups or organizations that don't have kind of the infrastructure to have a full-time person kind of dedicated to this. I think it can be tough. There's some really good sort of resources out there, but it evolves pretty quickly and I think it's hard to keep track of it. And one of the goals is to keep is to keep attendee data secure in a digital world, isn't it? So my health, my data applies to data shared non-digitally too. So it applies sort of to the sharing of data generally. But in general, yeah, I think these laws are really designed at sort of online sharing and this idea that you're putting your data out onto the internet and then you should know what happens with it after that. But if I, you know, create an account because I want to buy a shirt from someone that they're not then selling my data to somebody else and using it in a way that I wouldn't want. It's knowledge about how your data is being used and control over it so that I can say, hey, store, I bought a shirt from you 15 years ago. I don't still need you sort of sending me targeted ads when I'm in my Gmail account. And and like you said, it's food allergies and ADA that meeting planners should be aware of regarding this law. Yeah, I think it's anything that could sort of disclose an underlying health condition. Okay. So a food preference might not be triggered if you said, you know, I personally just don't like fish, but I'm not allergic to fish. So if I said, you know what, I'll take the chicken instead of the salmon because I don't like salmon, that's not a healthcare issue. But if I said, I have a deathly shellfish allergy, you need to be aware of it. That's an underlying health condition. So it's really targeted at health information. And again, is broad enough to include things like measurements, things like that. But I think as we read through the list, the things that jumped out for sort of the events we planned most were things like food allergies and then some sort of ADA requirement type stuff that just requires for a person to be on an event and have an inclusive event, some of that information to be shared. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. When we were together at IMAX, we also discussed that in a rush to get AI products out, some tech companies have disregarded some intellectual property protections. I was hoping you could explain that. 
Yeah, I think, you know, like any new innovation, there's going to be, the world is going to change the innovation and the innovation is going to change the world. I genuinely believe that AI will change the industry, will change the world. But I also think we need to harness it. I think we went through that, you know, with computers, with the internet, with social media, with things like file sharing and music sharing. You know, most of my listening to music is done streaming on Spotify now. That wasn't true 20 years ago. So I think similar to the sort of the journey we went through with music sharing, there was a while where you could go online and download any song for free and artists weren't getting paid for that. And then Spotify came in and there were licensing deals. So it wasn't, you can't stream, you have to buy a physical CD, but that streaming looked different. People had memberships. Those artists were compensated for their intellectual property. I suspect we're going to move somewhere similar with AI where right now these generative AI tools have skimmed a lot from the internet. They can create a lot, but there are some artists and creators who are saying, but you skimmed work that I didn't get compensated for that's now being used to create this. Sarah Silverman is sort of leading a lawsuit. She has a really unique voice as an artist. And she's saying that her books are sort of in these tools such that I could go on and say, write this article for me in the voice of Sarah Silverman. And she's saying, well, that's my IP. That's my brand. I created that. I should get compensated for it. I wouldn't be surprised if we move to a world where you can license something that says, you know, I want the, almost like you do fonts in a, in a word document that you could license that. And then artists and creators would see some sort of payback for that. So I think in the next couple of years, we'll see it, but I think the technology is moving a little bit faster than sort of regulations and compliance. I know Biden just put out sort of a, a presidential order asking for a little bit more regulation, a little bit more thought, a little bit more investigation. Other government agencies have done the same. So I think the world needs to sort of understand what these technologies can do and how that sort of fits into our understanding of ownership. I think this was an issue that was a big deal in sort of the writers and actors strike of you know, you shouldn't be able to do a 3D rendering of an actor and then just put them in the background of a scene. So I think that idea of what it means to be a creator, what it means to own IP is going to evolve and AI will push it in some ways that are healthy and in some ways that probably feel uncomfortable and it'll look different. But the thing we're thinking about too is protecting our own IP. We want to be thoughtful about what we're putting back out into those systems, what we consider to be our secret sauce and sort of what we're willing to put out there. So I think it's on both sides. We want to be ethical about how we're using data that's out there and making sure that we're sort of being respectful of people's creativity and art, but also being protective of sort of our own team's creativity and making sure we're being thoughtful about what goes out there. So like everyone, we're navigating it. At Merit, something we found to be helpful is just getting a cross-functional team. We have sort of me, also our head of technology, our head of innovation, our head of finance. We're meeting at least once a week, sometimes a lot more frequently to just think through what are the use cases that make sense for us? Because we we know that this is, it's not a trend, it's staying. We want to use it. And there's ways in which it could, you know, get rid of mundane tasks, change the world, change how we do business. But we also want to do that in a way that feels ethical and safe and sort of aligned with our values. So we're navigating it day by day, like I think a lot of companies are. Anything meeting planners should keep in mind when using AI right now? I think two main things come to mind. I think one is 
these tools aren't perfect, like any technology. You know, sometimes you Google something and the answer that comes back isn't right. I think AI is not magic. It's sort of a search function that's incredibly robust and helpful. I've been planning a personal vacation using ChatGPT and it's unbelievable. I mean, probably saved me 10 hours of just looking at things and thinking about what to do. And it's incredibly helpful. But then there's also stories of people who sort of got it to tell a story about George Washington and Barack Obama having coffee together. Like it's not perfect. They they call them hallucinations that AI can sort of, it's geared to give you an answer. So if there's just not an answer, occasionally it will create one there. So I think being thoughtful about that, there's also bias in the tools in the same way that there is in society and on the internet. Somebody told me a story about searching for, show me a picture of a judge. And 95% of what came back were white men. And then they looked up the statistics and actual judges in America are much more diverse from that. So it's reflecting a bias, but kind of amplifying that bias. So I think being thoughtful about what comes out and making sure you sort of trust but verify and you, you know, you're using critical thinking skills and you're thinking about what comes through and you're you're using it as a tool, but then also putting sort of your own expertise on it. We were at a meeting where an event planner sort of pulled up, here's a sample day in Italy that you could do. And all of the planners in the room looked at it and started laughing and said, no one person could do all of that in a day. They're not taking into account travel time and how tiring it is. And the actual expertise that a planner has to say, oh no, that would be not great in real time. So to take that initial suggestion and amplifying it. I think the other thing I would say is just being thoughtful about what you share out there. You know, if I say I'm going to London in December, what's a good itinerary? It's pretty low risk to me if I say, here's my social security number, do this with it. That's probably not a good idea. So I think just being thoughtful about sort of what's confidential and sort of how to use the tools in a way that you're getting value from it, but not giving too much in that might the same way you would use social media or Google or any other tool like that. I mean, we just talked about two big issues, you know, data privacy and AI. Are there other issues meeting professionals should have on their radar from a legal perspective? You know, we talked about this a little bit. I think emergency preparedness more and more, I think is really important. I think we think about it in terms of the pandemic. If anything, I've seen people get a little too laser focused on pandemic planning as though other emergencies can't happen on site. So there was a while where we thought of emergencies as being hurricanes and tornadoes. And now I see emergency prep clauses sometimes be if there's a virus that's impacting these things. And I hope that it's extremely unlikely we have another similar virus. I think hurricanes are more likely, unfortunately, things like active shooters data breaches, phishing exercises. So I think being thoughtful about risk as a whole and sort of having a comprehensive emergency prep plan that's sort of, if something happens, these are the people we will mobilize and less sort of, if there's another pandemic, we will be ready. Because just like we didn't see COVID coming, I suspect the next sort of major issue will be something that you and I could spend the next three hours brainstorming and probably wouldn't think of. And so I think just being thoughtful about that sort of holistic planning. And then I think the other thing is just, you know, I think 
everybody is risk adverse right now coming out of the pandemic. People got burned, they had cancellations. So I think contract negotiations are harder now than they ever were. It's, you know, we see clients who are saying, well, I don't want any of the risk for this. My, we got burned, my GC, my CFO say that we can't take on all of this risk. And then we see suppliers say, we went through the fires. We can't have that happen again. We can't take on this risk, especially around things like cancellation. Clients want super flexible cancellation. Hotels and other suppliers want to know that the event will happen because they've seen what it looks like when they have a lot of cancellations. Trying to find that middle ground right now, I think is a real challenge. I suspect a new normal will come, but I think we're still working through kind of what exactly that looks like. And do you feel it was more of a partnership before the pandemic and now it's a little more contentious? I think that we almost, there was a little bit of innocence, I think, before the pandemic where some of these issues just didn't get talked about because there was a sense of, well, most meetings go right. We don't really need to be worried about it. And so I think it felt like partnership. I think it can be healthy that these issues are coming up, that people are saying, if somebody does get sick, what are we going to do? Somebody gets COVID and they have to stay in the hotel an extra five days. Who covers the cost of that? What does that look like? So I think we're having harder conversations earlier, which makes us more prepared if something goes wrong. But it also can be hard because you're sort of bringing those issues to light early and often. And even in cases where a meeting goes perfectly, you're still having to navigate that. But I do think it's such a collaborative industry and where we've seen things go really well is when people do sort of just have that conversation of saying, this is what's critically important for me and my group. And the other side says the same thing. And there's almost always a middle ground. But I think transparent and frequent communication seems to be the best way to get through it. And then when things do go wrong, I think we're more prepared. We, we've we been through it. We've tested those systems. We've seen where the flaws are, maybe the weak points and people have shored them up. So I think I think it's harder, but I think it's probably stronger and more robust. And would you say that's one of your goals is to help your colleagues find that middle ground? Yeah, I think Merits has kind of a unique position of sometimes being in the middle of those discussions. We're not, you know, we're sometimes planning our own events, but for the most part, we have a client who's sort of the event host and we have suppliers and we bridge those gaps. So I think that's a place we really add value is being able to navigate those conversations and find that middle ground. We also see a lot of meetings across a lot of clients and a lot of suppliers. So we're in a position of being able to sort of say, this is what other people are doing. This is what's the norm. This is how we'll get through it. Our team laughs at me because I think I'm the first person to always say there's no reason to bring lawyers in at this point. We sometimes have folks get really litigious really early and say, well, we need to send them a strongly worded legal letter. And I'll say, well, did somebody pick up the phone and just call the hotel and say, will this work? Because often there's a middle ground between kind of what they want or what they actually need versus what they said they wanted. And there's something that makes sense there. You know, we We've had clients who say, well, we're going to need to cancel because we're not sure about X and they want to send a cancellation letter. Someone picks up the phone and says, can we have another 15 days before we pay the deposit? And a vendor might say, yeah, I'd rather have you pay a deposit 15 days later than cancel the whole event. Or they find a way to work together through it. 
So I think those conversations, but I think because the pandemic burned everyone so bad, there is sometimes an initial hesitancy to just call up your colleagues. I think some of that is also exacerbated by how much turnover the industry has had in the last few years. In some cases, you might have had somebody that you worked with for a long time at a supplier at a hotel, and that person might not be in there anymore, and you might not have that strong relationship. But I think we're getting back to the place where people have more more people they can pick up and sort of more having those conversations and less sort of sending a strongly worded demand letter, which sort of never never leads to collegiality and collaboration usually if you start with sort of a letter from a legal team. So in your opinion, what are the biggest challenges currently facing the event industry? So I think... I think innovation will continue to be a challenge. I think we're a big ship to move. So I think as AI rolls out and we think about sort of what does that mean for the future of meetings and events, I think will be tough. I think sustainability will continue to be sort of important and also a challenge because there's such a power to face-to-face -face meetings, but you're moving a lot of people that comes with sort of a carbon footprint. So I think thinking through how do we have responsible, sustainable meetings, it's super important to our clients. It's important to a lot of our vendors. It's really important to merits. I think we're going to need as an industry to figure out sort of how we balance that and how we have meetings in a way that feels safe and sustainable. Um, and then I do think this risk issue of sort of if something does go wrong, who holds the liability for that, I think is a challenge right now and will sort of continue to be for a while until we, we sort of things feel fully normal again, and we've kind of worked out those boundaries. If you could change one thing in the event industry, what would it be? Ah, that's a great question. I, I think a lot of our contracts are very long and like very wordy. And I, I would love to see us have a more streamlined sort of briefer contracting process. I think as an industry, we like to dot every single I and cross every single T. So I'll sometimes see contracts where you can read it and say, oh, you had one very specific thing happen 15 years ago. And now there's three pages of language that are like, if it's a Tuesday and a hurricane hits and a guy named Bob is on charge and you're like, oh my gosh. So I think we could streamline the process and bring it a little bit higher level, but that might be a little bit of a pipe dream. <laughs> Um, what's your advice for meeting professionals looking to advance their careers? You know, I think it's um, I think it's probably similar to a lot of industries, but I think making connections and finding mentors early and often, sort of not being afraid to reach out to somebody who's been in the industry and sort of can help shepherd you through it, take you under their wing. I think more legal specific is ask questions. You know, I got a call the other day from one of our travel directors, well, a travel director manager who said, I just have some questions about the liability waiver process. And I've never really understood this. And can you just explain it to me? And we talked through it. And it ended up being an incredible discussion because what she identified were, here are some pain points that we have on site with getting these signed. And I said, oh, I never knew that but it, there's no legal reason it's like that. So we could change that, still protect the company and make everybody's lives easier. And I think sometimes people are hesitant to sort of ask those questions to say, hey, I know I've been doing this for five years, but I actually don't understand what this piece of paper says. Can we talk about it? 
I think, you know, that being willing to ask the dumb question and have that conversation and sort of be vulnerable has led sort of when I've done it to some great knowledge and when I've seen other people do it to some great sort of process improvements and thoughtfulness, but it can be hard, especially, you know, this person who said, I've looked at this piece of paper a million times and I figured I'd finally just raise my hand and say, I'm not sure I get it. And it's like, great. I would love it if everybody did that. And I think especially when you're young, you sometimes you want to look sort of smart and like, you know, what's going on. And I think that can sometimes keep you from asking what might be a dumb question, but what might also sort of make you smarter and better and more efficient at your job. And maybe you are seeing a gap that nobody else saw. So I think being willing to raise your hand and ask those questions is super, super important, but also hard. Not sure I always do it, but I think it's important when it happens. And I'm sure you have an open door policy with- Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we, um, you know, it's something that I think our general counsel, my boss, really emphasized when I came in. And I think it's true for our whole department of, we never wanted to be what felt like a back office legal function where we were sort of, you know, people were scared and that came from legal. So we really focused on building relationships kind of within the company and then with suppliers and with supplier and clients, lawyers, to make sure that people feel comfortable asking those questions. It always makes me laugh at something like IMEX because I'll think, oh, you know, I'm here. I have a couple of interviews. I have one presentation. And then people will come up to me all week from Merits and say, hey, since you're here, I do have this question. And I'll think, you can pick up the phone anytime, but I love getting that information because it makes us better. It makes us stronger. But, you know, when you're physically with people, those issues sort of bubble to the surface. Someone says, I have this pain point I've been thinking about. Can we talk through it and make it better all day? But I think it's more intimidating to sort of set up a meeting than it is to talk about it over a cocktail. But I think for us, that's super important to sort of keep the finger on the pulse of both the industry and what's happening at the company. How many are on your team? So we have three full-time lawyers and then sort of a pretty robust outside um, network of consultants that we work with that sort of provide kind of support for that. But we're we're lean. We were bigger pre-pandemic and have not gotten fully back up. But like I said, we have a pretty robust sort of network. But yeah, we're a very lean team inside Merits. And how many employees are there? Um... All told a little over 2000, but we have a couple of different sort of, we're not all meetings and events. So some of that is is okay. captured in our other product lines, but around 2000 total. Is there anything I didn't ask that you think meeting planners should be aware of right now? Not off the top of my head, no. I think, you know, morality, AI, and privacy laws are the things that are keeping me up at night now for sure. So those are, and that's enough. That's enough things for people to worry about, I think. Right. So um, we always end our podcasts by asking, who do you feel we should have on our next podcast? And what would be one of the questions you recommend we ask that person? So I would say Meg Pisani. She's our vice president of supplier relations. Meg is um, just an unbelievable industry presence. I think Meg is incredibly good at sort of getting to yes, navigating those really hard conversations between clients and suppliers, has such a finger on the pulse. I would ask her about when it seems like a client in a hotel or at an impasse, how do you sort of break down those barriers and get through it? I think it's a skill she has that I saw time and time again during the pandemic where people 
sort of thought they were ready to sue each other, Meg would get on the phone and two days later, they'd have a plan for a beautiful event and be working great together. So I think I think she's talented at that. And I think it's a skill that people could really learn from. And you just said something that um, I found interesting. Is that what you help do as well? Get people to yes? I think that's that's sort of our mantra. Meg and I work really close together. We talk about that a lot of what we want is for meetings to happen and meetings to be great. So I think trying to get both parties to yes to a place that feels fair, that feels good is a huge amount of what we do. You know, we were lucky enough that we basically, you know, very, very rarely see things actually end in sort of legal action because I think, you know, the industry is what it is. And if you can get people on the phone and sort of get to yes, find a way to make it happen, there's almost always a middle ground. But I think that's a huge part of the role Merits plays is sort of being that intermediary and helping sort of get over those hurdles as they come, whatever they are. Well, this has been so much fun. I'm so happy we had a chance to talk and so interesting. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This is great. I was listening to the podcast as I was getting ready and now I'm a subscriber and a fan. So I'm also glad you have been turned on to it. Oh, great. Love to hear that. Well, thank you again. Thanks.